Falofalava, this is Pacific Waves from RNZ Pacific. Loingo Ososana Suisuiki. Coming up. Most of our people are dying from heart diseases and followed by diabetes and hypertension. The head of health in the Cook Islands says fighting NCDs is a top priority for the country. Also, we're all disappointed because we put our maximum effort there. The flying Fijians almost defeat Wales in their Rugby World Cup match. Elisa Tora has more. And later, the stage is set in Otago, New Zealand for its 30th Polyfest. The Cook Islands has shifted its focus from fighting COVID-19 to fighting non-communicable diseases or NCDs. The country's Secretary of Health, Bob Williams, spoke to a crowd of about 600 Pacific Health professionals who made the trip over to Rarotonga for the Pacifica Medical Association Conference. Mr Williams says about half of people living in the Cook Islands have NCDs. He spoke with Caleb Fotheringham. It seemed like staffing was a big issue that you were talking about, including a lot of other Pacific countries. What's the problem with your staff? Where do you need the gaps to be filled? Most of them are nurses. Although we were able to recruit some to replace those, most of them are expatriate workers who left for New Zealand and Australia. But at the same time, we managed to recruit some doctors from Myanmar and nurses from Fiji. But currently, we're still short on the ground. At the moment, we're managing with the current workforce that we have here, especially on Rarotonga. You also talked about NCDs, a big problem across the Pacific. What's the current stats with the Cook Islands? Yeah, almost half of our population uh, have NCDs, whether just diabetes or some have more than one, uh, whether it be diabetes, hypertension and some with heart diseases. Most of our people dying from heart diseases and followed by diabetes and hypertension. So it is for those reasons now that we are pushing our Healthy Island and Smoke Free Island initiatives to the pioneer. So four islands has been done so far since February. And we've done one school here in Rarotonga. And the aim is to get across at least two more schools here on Rarotonga to be healthier schools. Aitutaki, we'll be going to Aitutaki after the conference and then pushing up north before the end of the year. So hopefully by the end of the year, uh, we've pushed across the Healthy Island, Small Free Island project right across the islands here in the Cook Islands. And part of that, uh, of course, is to address the, the rate of NCD. There's been four focus in terms of our healthy island programs. One is drinking water, so getting our people to drink more water and less fizzy drinks, sugary drinks. And second is getting our people to get more active, so introducing activities in our paino. And also for oral health, we found across the four islands that we've done so far, and all the schools here in Rotorua, the oral health conditions of our children is not very good and also RHT screening for rheumatic heart diseases. It was good in Moke, no new cases detected, but all the other islands that we've gone through, including Rarotonga, there has been some confirmed rheumatic heart disease students, children, that has been uh, detected, and some borderline. And also we've included NCD screening and men's health screening in, our, in this Healthy Island Initiative. Would you say those are the, we touched on quite a few things, but is that sort of the main priority post-COVID, is that sort of what you're looking at? Yes, definitely. It is addressing, trying to reduce, manage and reduce the, the rate of NCD in the Cook Islands. It's a priority for our country, the Cook Islands, to reduce the rate of NCD uh, by 20, 25 years into the future. And of course, uh, looking at obesity, concentrating on our children.
A geopolitics analyst says some Pacific countries who oppose Japan's Fukushima-treated water release are bowing to China. The Melanesian Spearhead Group Secretariat has condemned Japan's decades-long release of treated nuclear wastewater into the Pacific Ocean, with the exception of Fiji's leader who says the science stacks up. Former intelligence and defense policy analyst and consultant to U.S. government security agencies, Paul Buchanan, told Lydia Lewis the Fukushima issue has become more of a geopolitical and diplomatic problem than a scientific one. Japan is burdened by its own history. You know, the Japan presence in the South Pacific during World War II was not a happy one. And there are historic memories that are associated with that, cast Japan in a negative light. Then there's the very, very reasonable anti-nuclear sentiment that goes back to the French testing days, uh, the American testing days, and the destruction that they wrought on uh, small island states. Uh, that, uh, that all is true and is reasonable. You know? But uh, here's where they run afoul of the science. The science simply points to North Pacific gyre and the various currents that are its component parts None of the water that's being discharged off the coast of Japan will ever make it down to the South Pacific. Again, you know, just basic physics uh, and atmospherics uh, tell us that there is no cause of concern in the South Pacific. And yet that anti-nuclear sentiment is translated into opposition, not only by activists, but by some of the governments that are uh, members of the Pacific Island Forum. And unfortunately, I would say that this is born more of ignorance than of uh, rational concerns about the spillover effects of this treated water and may uh, actually hang on to uh, lingering historical distrust of the Japanese, uh, to which I would add, that the Japanese have not ingratiated themselves uh, to people with their whaling activities. And so you have a combination of anti-Japan sentiment with anti-nuclear sentiment, all uh, against the backdrop of Japan's behavior in World War II up to the present day when it comes to issues like uh, uh, whaling. And so I think there's a fundamental distrust Uh, when it comes to the honesty of the Japanese, at least in the perception of Pacific Island activist communities and some of their government leaders, when it comes to events like this. Either people do not trust the Japanese and for some reason do not believe what the UN and uh, the IAEA have said uh, when it comes to the science of this treated war, Uh, or they're simply ignorant of the science and are allowing their uh, distrust of the Japanese to, uh, uh, to overcome them. Speaking about that distrust, Melanesian spearhead group leaders have recently said as a collective that they strongly urged Japan not to discharge the water. They released that statement after the discharge started. Well, I think that we have to understand, again, the geopolitics of the equation matter most. The MSG, uh, as well as the Pacific Island Forum, have one eye on China and the other eye on Japan. We have to remember that China is a major provider of developmental assistance. And so uh, China has come out forcefully against the Japanese, again, in, in you know, complete violation of the science. 
And I think that these states are acting more to stay in line with the Chinese and keep that pipeline uh, open to them when it comes to developmental assistance, because the Japanese don't provide hardly any anymore in the South Pacific, so they're an easy mark. It's easy to sit in the South Pacific and criticize Japan because there will be no harm accrued because of that. And so I think it's, it's an easy way out for the MSG to appear to be uh, on the side of the Chinese when it comes to this dispute. Again, the Chinese are doing it for non-scientific reasons. Uh, they're not you know, friendly with Japan at all. And so uh, that combination of geopolitical factors, I think, is what's behind uh, the opposition to the wastewater discharges up in Japan, but again, all in violation or ignorance of, of basic atomic science. And uh, that's the worrisome thing in, these, in this day and age, is that uh, increasingly we're seeing anti-science uh, rhetoric and narratives taking over, not only amongst activists and conspiracy theorists and those sort of folk, but in the governments, uh, and not just in small island states either. Uh, it's infiltrated into some of the mainstream discourse, uh, dare I say it, to include in New Zealand. And so uh, what we've got is more of a geopolitical and diplomatic problem than we do have, uh, have a scientific problem. And unfortunately, uh, I believe that uh, geopolitical and diplomatic problems are more insurmountable than scientific ones are. So where to from here? This is happening for decades. Well, I mean, this is the first of uh, these treatments from this particular plant, which is about to be decommissioned. So uh, obviously the Japanese will have to take note of the opposition to the discharges. Uh, they will clearly note that uh, there are groups, including groups in government, and other states that don't care about the science. They're all about you know, diplomatic point scoring and catering to their constituent bases. But I think that other than that, there will be more and more rigor applied to nuclear waste treatment. And I guess the thing that we need to think about, uh, because it's coming down to the South Pacific, is that the South Pacific is a nuclear-free zone that includes not only weapons, although we know that nuclear submarines uh, with, with possibly with nuclear weapons transit the South Pacific on a regular basis, but with this new AUKUS agreement between the United States, uh, the UK, and Australia to deliver nuclear submarines to the Australians, beginning in 2024, we have the makings of a violation of the Treaty of Rarotonga, which is what declares the nuclear free zone. That was geopolitics analyst Paul Buchanan talking to Lydia Lewis about the Fukushima fallout and nuclear issues across the Pacific. The Flying Fijians came excruciating close to winning their first game of the Rugby World Cup, but it was not to be. Fiji pressed for a try at the death, but a dropped ball saw Wales hold on 32-26. Wales had previously led 32-14 before Fiji came roaring back. Captain and earlier tri-scorer Waisia Nayadalevu told Sky Sport it's tough, but they will learn from it. Tough one. Tough one. We're all disappointed because we put our maximum effort there. I think I can say credit to the boys for the effort today. We work until the end. And uh, 
RNZ Pacific senior sports journalist Elias Otora is in Bordeaux and he spoke with Koroi Hawkins shortly after the Wales match. Well, um, I think Fiji played uh, above expectation um, in the game against uh, Wales. Uh, they started well, they competed well, and they ended, uh, you know, going into uh, over 80 minutes. Um, a lot of uh, pluses from the game that, um, you know, Coach Simon Rewalui and, and the players would, would be taking into account as they uh, move forward. Unfortunately, uh, it was a comeback too late. Uh, there were uh, some calls that... Uh, they had question uh, in the game, but uh, yeah, uh, Wales uh, was able to make use of the opportunities they had. They got two bonus points out of this. How does this set them up for the rest of the pool play? And I guess what's the mountain to climb now? Uh, yes, that, that two points will, uh, you know, will uh, work for them um, uh, towards the um, uh, qualifications for quarterfinals. Uh, but they will need um, to win. Uh, against Australia and win uh, the other two two matches that they have uh, uh, to be able to get into the to the quarterfinal. It's uh, tit for tat, uh, especially now with uh, with Wales winning uh, that full match and Australia also uh, doing well in their in their first pool game. So for Fiji, uh, they need to to win against Australia and win uh, their other two pool matches after that to be able to qualify. Eh? Now, you've been, you've been in Bordeaux for a few days now. Um, uh, how, how are the, what's the fan support like for Fiji and, and how have the people you've been talking to there and in the sta- stands, obviously, today as well? Yeah, the, 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 the people here in Bordeaux, the locals in, in Bordeaux, uh, support uh, Fiji. Uh, they've uh, come out in support of the team. They've um, been talking about... Fiji uh, and their hopes that Fiji would win against against Wales. And uh, today, uh, you know, uh, there were local fans who were cheering uh, for for Fiji, uh, and of course uh, the big contingent of uh, Fijians who came from all over uh, Europe uh, uh, coming to support the flying Fijians. But uh, I know Fiji Fijian rugby is a uh, is a big um, thing for the French. Uh, they love uh, the way the flying Fijians play, and and you know the Pacific play of throwing the ball around and getting the open free play in the open field, um, and uh, with the big hits. Eh? That uh, that is something that uh, the French love to see, uh, because that is also uh, a game that they now also play: uh, big hits up up front and free flowing rugby once they get the ball in hand. First cab off the rank for the Pacific teams at the World Cup. What are the next Pacific games coming up? Chile and and um, and, and Samoa are playing. Tonga is meeting Ireland, and then Fiji Australia. So those are the three games that are going to be happening uh, next weekend. Of course, uh, Tonga and Samoa are taking a rest uh, on by this weekend, and we'll get their first games next week. Elisa, thank you so much for your time. I know it's uh, getting late or getting early now for you. So thank thank you so much for coverage and uh, yeah, looking forward to your, your reports through the tournament. Fiji's next match is against Australia in the early hours of Monday, September 18th.
It's the end of our show. Thousands of young Māori and Pacifica performers are gathering for the 30th anniversary of Otago Polyfest in New Zealand's South Island. The week-long celebration of Pacific cultures is happening in Dunedin and will be packed with an array of performances from students aged 3 to 19 years old. Around 4,500 performers are expected to take the stage. Alicia Foon is at Otago Polyfest and spoke with the festival director, Tanya Muangututia, ahead of opening night. It really is about honouring the generations and, you know, our parents who are now, the generation of our parents are now passing away. A lot of them have gone. So this festival marks, honours the generations by the families that are here, that have come through the festival as babies performing, volunteering, now working, now leading, you know, and that the part of the team now. And it's incredible that it's, 30 years, 30 years, and it um, really does mark the significant growth of how young people are able to mark their own identity and stand strong on the platform. And they, and it's just, it just grows and grows, not just for Pacifica Māori, but for everybody. It's just so cool. And um, you know, I'm a, I'm a South Island native, so I'm all for it. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Talk to me about cultural identity. You know, for Pacifica that are born in New Zealand, um, we are seeing, you know, language weeks and things like that, which is great from the Ministry of Pacific People. But ideally, Polyfest is a showcase, you know, of cultures coming together uh, through song and dance. So tell me, why is that so important? Well, yeah, it is a it is a moment for us to also acknowledge that, you know, um, Siva and Haka and all of that creativity put together on as a showcase platform is actually part of our lives you know it's a very intrinsic part of our growing you know the languages and those platforms like the language weeks you know they're just they're an awesome opportunity for the rest of Aotearoa to celebrate as well you know for non-pacific or um, or for even non-Maori to be able to acknowledge the language that sits within the Pacific you know whether it be te reo Maori or more, you know, it's just a beautiful way for our, for our, uh, especially our young people to celebrate. I'm from the first, I'm the, I'm a um, first generation New Zealand born, so I didn't grow up with that, you know, so my parents decided not to teach me my native language of Samoan, so, so, you know, I, I sort of sit in between that generation that um, weren't allowed to speak their own language. And then our young ones who, who are, you know, and I can join them celebrate the language weeks. Yeah. yeah. So I kind of sit in between there. Yeah. And I'm really jealous because they get all these polyfests. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't have that when I was growing up. <laughs> yeah. And talk to me about the work, the mahi that goes on behind these festivals. You know, there must be so much work, not only from the students spending hours on end to, you know, to perfect their performances, but what goes on behind the scenes for, for your team? Yeah, I think it's about... We're in this phase um, where we've been supported by uh, Creative New Zealand to be able to uplift our community by um, employing people, you know, to actually do what they've been doing for a long time. You know, it's not, it wasn't hard to find people to be event managers when they were, they grew up with the festival and then they became volunteers. And, um, and I'm an event specialist, so I'm able to come in and go, well, actually, you've been doing that for a long time and, and now we can acknowledge you by paying you. And, and it's actually contributing to the industry, the event industry. 
and our Pacific festivals around the country are doing that. You know, so there are probably about 30 Pacific festivals around the country. And so we're inviting, um, for Hui Talanoa, we're inviting, uh, you know, a few of them to come during the festival. And they're having a, their own little funnel that's happening Thursday and Friday at the end of the week. So I think eight or nine festivals are being represented at the Hui Talanoa. And um, they'll get to see it in operation. They'll get to see Otago, see how Otago does it. Most of them are from the North Island, which is great. Uh, and I think it'll be for them their first time. A few of them I know didn't realise how old the festival was. You know, it's one of the oldest festivals. You know, so it's like Auckland, ASB Polyfest, Wellington, and then Otago. And lo- a lot of people know that. And I think it, that's amazing. When I started, it was 28 years old, and I told everyone. You know, I told everyone. I told all my mates in the north, all around the country, you know that this festival's like 28 years old? And so now, 30 years, it deserves a celebration. We're bringing together other festival leaders. They're going to come and see how it runs. Talk about what it, what it is, how important it is to have these platforms. And, and start, you know, looking at collaborating, which is amazing. Yeah. So, yeah, there's a lot of that talanoa going on. Absolutely. So there's over 4,000 performers and hundreds of families. Uh, what do you want people to take away from the week of festivities? How do you want them to feel? Oh, I, I think they're, they're going to feel really proud. Yeah, I just I just know it. I think, you know, I want them to be part of the celebration. And we've been really feeling that through the offer of the stories. We've, we've offered families to bring these stories forward about their own Polyfest story. And we've seen today, because it's the start, we've just seen so many photos of past festivals and, you know, the adults now that were kids, you know, they've been putting up their photos of their first time, you know, so, yeah, we want them to feel proud. They deserve it. They deserve the celebration. You know, there's a concert at the end of the week, so, you know, there's time to party (laughs) with the families. Yeah, so, yeah, we just want them to feel proud. That's specific ways for today. Don't forget you can listen back on rnzi.com slash programs. We're also on Apple, Spotify and iHeartRadio podcasts. From myself and the RNZ Pacific team, it's all fast week four.